I'm Rihanna Dillon. This is Guru Live from Piccadilly. This session is entitled How to Direct Your First Hour of TV, which sort of says it all. Whether it's documentary, drama or multicam, we've got the answer for you. The host for the next hour is Sarah Putt. Okay, I'm going to kick off at the far end with Julian because you were saying, Julian, that you kind of always knew you wanted to be a director. This was... Tell us the story of where it all began. So, from the age of seven, I was watching Top of the Pops. Um, some of you may remember that programme. Um, at the age of seven, watching Top of the Pops with my mum. And um, I said, to, I actually didn't know what a director was at that point. So, at that point, I said I wanted to be a cameraman or camera operator. So, um, I started writing to the BBC um, when I was 14. And I started writing to them, and I wrote to them every three months. And to the point where they got so bored of me, they asked me to stop writing at one point. Um, that's a joke. And um, they were so fantastic with me. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to go on too much about this, because I think sort of human resources has very much changed nowadays. But they never fobbed me off. They, there was even one point when I needed to change my A-levels, because I hated physics. I sort of like it now, but I hated it at the time. And they gave me advice and da-da-da-da-da, but I, I'm not sure that would happen in this day and age. But um, I, yeah, so I then ended up directing Top of the Pops, and that was quite an um, emotional moment when my mum texted me and I tried to stop crying for the first three minutes of the programme. It's <laughs> not coming down my nose. So um, the PA and the vision mixer took over for that first three minutes. So, yeah, I sort of um, always knew I wanted to work in television is, is mainly... Um, I always, I always, always knew there was nothing ever else I wanted to do, which made me a bit boring um, and a bit, you know, lonely with no friends at the time. Um, but it, it stood me in good stead, and I think you really do have to have that absolute passion, especially in this day and age with the the competition you've got. I mean, I feel you guys, the competition is so, so, so fierce and... Um, but I think the key is that you've just got to really want to do it and you've just got to put it with a load of crap and, you know, you will get there in the end, I think. So your, your first break was really just getting in on that technical My first side break, and yeah, then it was just through. It was back in the day when the BBC, or they cared, um, and they still do care, but I had a two-year apprenticeship I came straight from my A-levels to a fully paid two-year job to the point where, because I was under 19, the BBC paid for me to go home every two weeks to see my parents. That's how good it was. They paid for my young person's rail card. Um, and at the end of that two years, um, I just... Because I started as a, um, in a, as a technical background, this is a brilliant place to start as well. If you are a camera operator or a sound operator or vision mixer, um, I know a lot of you will not probably want to be multi-camera directors, more sort of like PSC directors or single-camera directors. But if you do want to be a multi-camera director, having a very technical background is incredibly useful because lots of people try, want to try and fob you off with what can't be done. But if you have a little bit of knowledge about every little bit of aspect of the um, production that you're on, then that stands you in very good stead. And basically what happened with me was um, I was a vision mixer um, and that's very much sort of... Uh, please forgive me for those of you know, obviously know what a vision mix is, but it's essentially live editing. 
Um, and I just moved across the chair very quickly and um, bizarrely at 22 was directing all the main news output for the BBC. Nowadays I'd be like a BAFTA hotshot or something. <laughs> then literally... And indeed you still are. Thank you. you. So. But, you know, I, that's, that's how it all... And then, then it sort of snowballed and I just put, took every opportunity. Fantastic. So, Chloe, you were, you were considering a career at the other side of the camera at one stage. No, I didn't consider it. I did a lot of acting at school. And um, when it came to choosing a course, I was either going to go to art school or go to do drama, because I love drama. In the end, I did a drama degree, and I thought, right, I'll do loads of acting. And I got there, and I realised I was shit at acting and should stop. Um, and then I discovered, actually, of directing, because there was a post-grad film course there, and I helped out on their shoots. And then there was a competition to write a script. I wrote a script, and they said, what do you want to do on it? And I went... I want to direct, and I didn't know what that was, and then after that, so I did various things. I went to film school mm. for a year, but I didn't actually know you could be a director, a director. of TV. I so what would you say that. your first break into directing was then, and how, how did you um, get that? I think, actually, that it was a bit stop-start, but after I went to film school for a year, but then actually I did get on a training course at the mm. BBC, mm. and it was a two-year production training course, but it was in factual, mainly, although I tried really hard for it to be in drama. So I did all these things. I went to EastEnders, and I went to when George Fable was at drama. Um, but it was really Daisy Goodwin, who is uh, absolutely brilliant. And she's one of those people, she's a writer and she's run companies, she was at Talkback. But she basically took a risk on me and said, uh, come and be a researcher on this book magazine programme. And then gave me 30 seconds to direct and then longer pieces to direct. So that was the, that was the, the first factual break. And know, then the... Yeah. Okay. And Matt, you were saying that sort of you came really from the development side into directing. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in between these two in a way. I, I knew I wanted to be in this world uh, and I loved the creative process. And so I was always into writing, I did acting and sort of did a bit of storytelling on stage. And, and it was after university um, that I got into TV just as a runner. Oh. Um, <clears throat> And I worked my way up as a researcher and AP on some terrible shows. And I eventually, someone took a chance on me working in development. So uh, a, quite a, a, a production company that made a lot of stuff, factual entertainment, sport, documentaries. And through that, a lot of ideas for documentaries were getting commissioned. But there was this brick wall where it would get commissioned and the channel would want someone else to direct it. Um, but that's how I started. But development is a really good route because you learn, you make your own taster tapes, you learn how to edit, you learn how to chase down stories, you meet commissioners, you learn um, kind of the as politics at play that you can see going on. Um, so I reckon people should consider development as a, as a route as in, a route in. As, a, as a foot in the door. Yeah. And was that similar for you, Zara? You were saying that you always knew you wanted to be a storyteller, mm. but you weren't quite sure when you were younger as to how that might manifest itself. So how, how did you enter? Yeah, um, I, I definitely knew that if I could somehow make a living out of telling stories, <sighs> that would be amazing. Um, and I think for quite, quite a few years, I thought I wanted to be a theatre director. 
Um, so I did a lot of um, theatre and I directed lots of um, student theatre and stuff like that and took something to Edinburgh. And then I was working in London <coughs> at university doing a kind of media consulting job to pay off some of my student loans and trying to do theatre on the side. And then during these couple of years that I was doing that, I... I, at the same time as starting to think more critically about the theatre world in terms of how um, exclusive and insular it is in, in, in my experience of it, um, I, I also started to develop a real passion for kind of cameras and kind of geeky technical stuff <laughs> and was starting to feel like actually um, there's something really powerful about telling a story on a screen um, more than, a, well, in a different way than in a theatre, and I still absolutely love theatre, but I, I started to think, actually, it's really, really powerful, and then if you could make something that would be on, in people's homes, that would be incredible. Like, if you could tell a story that millions of people could watch at the same time, and different kinds of people, not just people who <coughs> live in London and go to the theatre. <laughs> it's quite interesting, that because you studied drama, didn't you? And, and I studied drama and theatre, and it's, you're obviously it, into theatre, yeah, yeah. we've all kind of turned our backs well, on it. Well, I, I had a very clear moment where I was at a fundraising party in High Street Kensington for a theatre production, and they were all talking about like how to get these actors to play these sort of, this, it was a political story, and I was like, why don't you talk to some people who went through that to get a sense of the research? And they were all like, what? Real people? <laughs> real people? No. And I thought, hang on, real people are everything. Oh. Like, that's drama, isn't it? And so that's how my preoccupation with documentary came about, actually. And so I thought, I need to learn about people and life. And it, basically, for the last 10 years, I've been being paid to do that, yeah. which is amazing. What a gift, you know. So sort of being a listener, being... Yeah. Because yeah. you were saying that, Chloe, weren't you, that now you're, you, with your move from documentary to drama, that mm. actually that having a real sense of what sounds and feels real and and yeah we were talking about this earlier that you get to a point where even in real life sometimes if you're listening to someone you can hear <laughs> the cut points you can hear the bits that you'll just get rid of and you know what will it's, and it's a sense basically you're writing on the fly yes because you're taking real life and you're cutting the boring crap out of it and you're making a structured story mm. but you're trying to illuminate something it's a bit like doing a really good portrait of someone which is not just a photographic likeness of it, something about their character, so you illuminate the character. And when you were talking just then, I do, I do things with actors sometimes where I just say, um, okay, I'm, inter I'm interviewing you now. And they're like, what? Just interviewing you. Can you just tell me about your sister? So they have to improvise. I mean, it's improvisation anyway, but I just use all my interviewing skills and just pretend mm -hmm. that, you know, I've just sort of doorstep them. So those skills are very much... Stood you in good stead throughout yeah, think, your career. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and Julian, what what skills as a multi-camera, when you first moved across from that vision mixing chair to the directing <coughs> chair, what did you take with you? What did you need in order to make that possible? Um, it's a hideous cliche, <laughs> but it's a little bit like being a conductor. So essentially, you are bringing, you are... You get to the point where you, you are sick of the sight of you know, the sound of your own voice. So I can never go to after parties because I literally can't talk to anybody because I'm so sick of talking. But it's talking at the right time. So often some directors will just literally gabble and gabble and gabble and sort of like almost like an advanced driving test where they will explain exactly what's going on. It's knowing when to talk and when not to talk and when let, let people just get on with their jobs. 
the beauty of my job, and I'm sure with you guys as well, that I get to sort of generally handpick who I work with. And over the years, we, you end up working with a team of people that trust you and you trust... Because it was just talking... Just what's so funny about the, the self-editing bit... Gaining people's trust as a director, I would say, is the, is probably the key thing, and it's all about relationships with with your actors, with your presenters, with your producers. Because I can self-edit, but I hate it when people pick me up on it because I haven't got time. As a director, you never have enough time to do anything. Never, ever. And you're always running... A, would you agree? There's literally never any time, really, to, to get the thing you want to get done. So you're always rushing. So to to get people to trust you... So the point I was trying to make about the self-editing is that some people often question you. And it's not like you're always right. I am, I am very, very rarely right. But there's sometimes when I'm so busy, I know that I'm right. And then you have to be able to do this self-editing and somebody might say, but we need to do that bit again. But you know that two takes before, you've got the one you can use and it's, it's gaining people's trust. So I haven't really answered your question, but the, the key is that you, the, the skills I brought over were listening. I can basically have, I can do, a funny, I can multitask like it's beyond belief. I can be having this conversation with you and I can hear two or three other conversations going at the same time. I can pick out which one is the most impo- important one to deal with and prioritise it. So as a multi-camera director, saying you're on a live show, there'll be people going, they'll, you know, VT, OK, hold on a second, VT, or cameras, hold on a second, cameras. And I'll know which... So being able to multitask is incredible. If you can't have a conversation on the phone whilst having a conversation with somebody else, don't bother trying to multi-camera direct because you just <laughs> won't be able to do it. Um, and it's just being able to listen and just being fair with people. And I, I've, I try never to, to raise my voice... If I do raise my voice, people prick their ears up and know that there's something that they've got to listen to. Because me droning on, I do get... I know for a fact, because when I was on this side of it, a boring director, I'd literally turn the talk back down. So because I had that experience, I try not to say too much, but and I try not to raise my voice, never shout at people, never... Whenever there's a fuck-up, generally people don't mean to do it. Unless they're being lazy, unless they're being stupid, they generally don't mean to do it. It's a real... There's always a reason. Whenever I've lost my temper, I've always been the one that's been embarrassed at the other end and been the one that's apologised. So I think being really calm... So, listening, multi-skilling, And calm. calm. And when it gets busier, go calmer. Yes. And when it's... Slower and Yeah, so the madder it goes... There's this brilliant selfie I've got where this show that I'm doing is falling to pieces live on air. And me, the vision mixer, and the PA, we are in our element. We're enjoying every single second of it because we're excited and it's like putting our skills to the test. And this selfie, the commissioner is in the background going like this. (laughs) The series producer is in tears. And we're calm because that's how we were trained and and just stay calm and and trust your crews. I think there's a Rudyard Kipling poem in there somewhere, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Matt, is is your experience similar or different? um, I would pick up on the, the trust... Um, which I think is really key. Um, but I'd expand it a bit to, to, to people skills. When you're making a documentary, and Zara, and you'll be able to talk about this, often there's, you're gaining people's trust to put them on screen and tell their story. And sometimes it frightens me when I meet people that have no 
people skills and are being sent in to, to film things. And because you do meet people that are just rude and, and yeah. have never been on a council estate and have, have grown up in, you know, in quite a prestigious backgrounds. And then all of a sudden they're thrown into telling these people's stories and you go, you have to get on with people mm. for them to trust you and them to actually try and enjoy. And is that empathy as well? You have to build empathy. Yeah, I think it depends on the person that you're filming. Sometimes it can be like real empathy for what they're going through mm. if it's obviously uh, some tragic circumstance. Sometimes it can literally just be that they enjoy your company mm. and they, they want you there. Um, sometimes you meet people that are born to be on television as characters and they, you have to sort of, so sometimes it's, they want you there because you're a bit of a support network as well, if they're going through difficult times. I just think you've got to get on with people. Mm. And if, if you're not, then if you don't, then your job as a director is going to be so hard. Mm. And when you went from development into directing, again, what, what was the skill set you felt you needed or needed then to develop that you hadn't used before? Were you aware of, My, of exercising new muscles in order to Yeah, direct? it was scary, but I would say, if I went back to, to sort of people skills, the only reason I made that leap was because I got access to interesting people uh, that had to be a documentary. Mm. So I wasn't kind of going around saying, oh, can I make a documentary on this? Can I make a documentary? I would get access to things that I would think would make an extraordinary documentary. And because those people were with me, I, they had to let me direct it. How did you get that access, though? I wrote to people. Right, so, but how did you find out about those people in the first place to write to them? Um, so when you're working in development, one of the jobs you're taught is you're going through newspapers, you're going through archive, you're going... So it's just research, it's yeah. like research. And yeah. I, I remember the first breakthrough I got, I literally wrote to a family and said, has anyone offered you the chance to tell your side of the story? Because I'd like to. And I thought they'd never write back, and I just got this call saying, we'd love to meet you. Mm. Mm. And I was told, when that was commissioned, that I w specifically... I was not getting this job because of my experience. <laughs> it was because of my access. Yeah. So relationships. Yeah. yeah so I've, had, I've had almost that exact experience, which is that um, uh, I think something you have to kind of come to terms with is that no one wants to really give you the next opportunity. <laughs> it's not in anyone's yeah. interest. Because they have a vested interest. Yeah. yeah. In the business, like, and I just think you need to embrace that really early on. And I was working in a development team similarly to that, actually, at Tiger Aspects, so a big company, really great company. And they were really supportive and excellent. But at the same time, <laughs> you've got a really good researcher <clears throat> who's doing a great job for you and is quite cheap. Why would you want to give them a promotion? <laughs> why would, yeah, why would what, you want to send them off onto location? Yeah. Like, there's literally no incentive for you as a company to develop someone's career in this industry. <laughs> so, yeah. And that sounds Because really, you lose one of your yeah, key you, team. You, and yeah. so my, my... I mean, it's very similar in a way. It's like, you have to basically put yourself in a position where you are inextricable from the project. <laughs> like, where you... They have to take... They have to kind of take you as part of the project. So I, I had a similar experience, actually, um, in terms of 
creating opportunities within the context of being on the development team, creating opportunities for myself where it was like, well, I kind of have to be there because I'm the one who they trust or whatever. But I think that... Um, I think that people, the sort of people skills element of, of being a director is, it kind of works. I, I would I would say it's like learning or understanding how to get the best out of people, and that's people who are going to be in your film, whether that's presenters or actors or contributors in documentary, and also people who you're working with, and that's above and below you. Yeah. And so I think what's really smart about being in development is, just on a really practical point, you're often sat next to the people who are running the company. Yeah. And it sounds so like banal, but oh, actually, yes, they knew my name. So like the person who was the head of the factual department at Tiger Aspect, who was a very powerful person, I was sat three desks away from him. And he's on a day-to-day -day level, he, he began to care about me as a person mm. in a way that if you're a faceless kind of researcher on a production, you, you, you just wouldn't because there's too many people, the turnover of staff is too high. And so when it came to, I'm really passionate about this project, I really want this opportunity to do this, and I have this unique thing that you're not going to get from anyone else, you're just putting us, you're maximizing the possibility of someone taking that risk on so you. Building the relationships inside the company. Yeah. The other as great well thing about. I think that's huge. I think that's a huge thing. If you've thing. done development, is actually you can go back to it between projects. <laughs> yeah. Or you can work yeah. yourself. So it from gives home. you a kind of bit of a safety net. So, like, right now, I've you're... got three things that I'm personally trying to get access to and talking to that are not with any company. But then also, it gives you this break where people know you can do it. So if you're not making a film, you can just sort of offer your services. Yeah, you know, which is mm. fantastic. Do you want three yeah, I still weeks? do that. I did that develop, which is something which was comedy and had a factual mm. element to it. So I said, well, I can do that because it teaches you how to write quickly, lay things out, try and pitch it in a few lines. And um, you, you were saying earlier, Chloe, about that you got to a stage with, within documentary where because of your reputation, because of the programmes you'd made, that would kind of bring work your way and that that's actually then to some extent and, and that that's actually been very different than moving across into fiction. Um, Tell us a bit about that. Yes, that, I mean, to the extent that that happens with yeah. you as well, which is I was making lots of quite scripted, arty documentaries, <coughs> sometimes funny, that had comedians in, sometimes near to... Ali G type stuff with um, Daisy Donovan where she'd sort of be a mental character and I'd have to try and just keep my head and film the chaos that was happening around her. But it got to a point where it was great. So people would know your work, they'd know you and think, oh, well, yeah, she's, she's good. I know that. I kind of get a sense of what, how she would do it. And if they liked that idea, then you'd get to see them and then you might get the job. Whereas fiction, it's mu this was a big shock. It's obvious when I thought about it, but I really hadn't experienced it. Is you, yes, they, I didn't have so much work to show, and they didn't know me. And I had to not just go and, you know, say these are my ideas, but actually go and pitch hard, pitch harder. Mm. So I had to, so now I take images, <coughs> sometimes music, I talk about DOPs I would use, you know, and I didn't do that in factual. Because so you're sort of creating the world yeah. for them in that, yeah. in, in and, that and interview. referring to other films and talking about casting. Um, and so do you think the role of, of director differs enormously between drama and documentary? It's yes and no. Yes, it does. It does. It feels very different just because you turn up to a set and there's trucks and it's 
you know, Jin has a very big truck. Ten times the amount of people. No, I mean, just yeah. from the things I was doing, which were, yeah. they got smaller and smaller it's not and smaller. about size. No, but there's also, there's a, there's a, it's interesting that people talk about this a lot, which is the auteur, you know, the yeah. author, is much, uh, they get to do much more auteuring, mm. possibly, than I do now. Yeah. Which is, um, and I get to do no autoing okay, whatsoever. Well, you have a bit bigger team. There's <coughs> what I love is the specialization of everyone. Yeah. So I love the fact that uh, you, you engage that person because they are brilliant at costumes, and your job is to tell them what you want, not to make the costume, mm. which I was often doing in documentaries. So there's less multitasking, but. Uh, there's more people around you do those tasks, yeah. but you have to do a lot more talking, communicating, and so it's somewhere between the author and the choreographer. The choreographer, yeah, definitely in, yeah. the conductors are very good. Also, I like. I've often met really good directors who are teachers mm. because they kind of they gather up a whole class, and point <laughs> them in the right direction, they keep you know. Stragglers, they kind of, you know, but conducting is the best. Sorry, I, I think what's interesting as well is it, it's just basically we're all saying trust your crew, aren't we? Essentially, because yeah. I made that around. mistake right at the very beginning. It's like I want that sort of light, I want that colour, and they would always come up with something far, far better, yeah. and I would look like an idiot. So I don't do that now. I give a general feel of what I want, and then I'll tweak it. One thing I did want to say just very quickly with regards to just to shine a little, little bit of light as well with regards to um, being a little. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? A little bit of hope. Never underestimate the newness of you, especially in my discipline, um, which tends to be sort of like music, ends, entertainment, all those stuff. The commissioners, the series producers, they are desperate for the new mm -hmm. because they want the next person that they can say they found. So if once you've got that first... Once you've got your first hour of television, it's something that I don't do very well, but just network like you cannot begin to double your networking efforts and tell people what you've done. Because what happened with me was it just snowballed. I just got my first hour of... Well, it didn't really work like that, but say my first hour of proper television. As soon as I'd done my first one, it was quite good... And not, again, it was a great project. It wasn't all to do with me. I had great people on it. But then it just snowballed. And because my name was, oh, have you heard of this guy? He's just done <laughs> this. It just, and then you end up taking too much work on. And then people stop bringing you because they think you're always busy. Or, <laughs> oh, that person takes too much work. And so it's a really hard path to, to navigate. But just don't underestimate the fashion within yeah. certain aspects of television mm -hmm. and the fact that a lot of people that are employing you actually nowadays won't necessarily have gone through a programme-making yeah. route. So it makes them look good if you're good and they can say, oh, I found that person. And everybody wants to discover. And everybody yeah. wants to discover the next. So Absolutely. never... And it's actually more difficult once you're doing it to maintain that sort of, like, newness or that... Mm -hmm you're the person to do that job because you'll bring something new to it. So just bear that in mind that, you know, people are always looking out for the next big thing and the next person to be the next BAFTA-winning director or the new big talent. So embrace that and, you know, see that as a positive thing. And keep Brilliant. going, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just don't give up, keep going.
Yeah, grit and determination. Yes. Well, I think that's a very good point at which to have a look at some of the, the work here. Mm. So I think we'll start off with Julian, and I think we've got a clip from Bit of camp nonsense. Drop. The reason I, I, I feel a little bit of a fraud here because um, although I set that show up from the very beginning, a lot of getting there is very... Well, I'm saying probably not, actually. It's really interesting because it's very rare that directors actually get to be in the same room as mm. each other. So I'm actually you know, like seeing similarities now more than differences. But actually, <laughs> that's all, that is a conversation that happens a year before that even happened. So... Like, I was asked to provide a bit of music to show how music um, illustrates my work. I don't... That doesn't really happen in my work because all the music is... I'm telling you how to feel, basically. So the heartbeat, oh, it's really exciting, this show, get ready. The big sort of, like, camp nonsense with the lasers. It's like, this is an event. The reason that was such a... I'm so proud of that show is that it was, it was properly live and trying to do a live game show is... Sorry, I'm having a panic attack thinking about it. Um, <laughs> Paper bag for Mr. Smith. But um, at least you can go, at least Channel 4 can go to a break if something goes wrong. Um, so everything there was doubled up. So she has, we had different contingencies, like if this went wrong, if that went wrong. You know, if we had... And there was a real proper security thing, you know. It was proper security detail. There was a real million pounds. People think it was fake. It wasn't. It was a real million pounds. They didn't actually take it away with them at the end, but... Um, it was a real million pounds. So what I wanted to show with that clip was that it was just trying to make a normal, essentially... It wasn't a boring game show. It was actually quite clever. It was, just, it was millionaire backwards, wasn't it? Um, but it was just to make it feel like an event because some of the other sort of, like, game show stuff I do... And I'm not knocking game shows, but they're not the most creative things. Once you've got them set up, three a day can be a bit soul-destroying. Pays well, but it's quite soul-destroying sometimes... Um, that's why you need a good team as well. And one of the really trite things I was going to say just earlier about your team, I tend to pick people if I want to go for a drink with them after the shoot. <laughs> if I don't want to go for a drink with them, I don't think there's those sort of people that I can work mm. with because I can't... Because it's really, going to be an intense... Yeah, because yeah. you've got to be... You're together so much. Mm. You've got to like each other. And you know what? The more and more... Again, I'm not answering your question. The more and more I think about what we're doing, it's just relationships. It's just getting yeah. on with people. No, I, I think you're building um, up the yeah. I worked with an editor recently that said to me, all we all do is wrangling. Yes. Mm. Wrangling people. Yeah. So persuading this person to do this whilst also persuading... And it's a horrible way of putting it. But it is. But it's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can I just say, so just very quickly, I was telling you about the low budgets, remember, just very quickly, yeah. I'll, I'll shut up for a second. So the <laughs> wrangling as well, you end up calling in favours from these people. So one of the depressing things about television now, going forward, is that the budgets for pilots and stuff are reducing and reducing and reducing. So I've got to a point where I'm doing two pilots next month, where basically my crew are doing the broadcaster a favour. So we're almost subsidising the broadcaster in order, to, in order to make that. So you will be so, I don't know, whatever level you're at, you will be tempted sometimes to do something for nothing and work ridiculous hours for nothing. I personally would say just beware of doing that. We're all going to say here, do, what it, do whatever what it takes, do what, but don't, don't be 
I've heard of some horrible cases and I've got some friends and people that I'm helping to direct who have done horrible hours and I'm sure you probably have as well, haven't you? Horrible hours for very little pay. Just be really careful about that, that's all I'd say because yeah. if those people are asking you to do that, they're the wrong people to be working with. I think it's with. knowing why you're doing it and what you're Precisely, going to get yeah. out of it. Right, sure. I think we're now going to thank you, Julian. Um, we're going to have a look at a clip that Chloe's chosen, which is from Hetty Feather, I believe, yes. and was a sort of particularly tricky scene. For well, it, it's almost, it was tricky, and it doesn't look tricky. Brilliant. It's not flashy, but I'll tell you why. Yeah. It's, it's quite a good example of what a director does. It's the emotional climax of a 10-part series. Matron, who runs the Foundling Hospital, uh, where all these children are, is put on the spot. They've discovered she's been hoarding hundreds of pounds. And so it's a showdown. It's also a court. And it was far too long, this scene. And I've been saying to the producer for ages, it's far too long. It's got to be cut. He wouldn't cut it because everyone's loath to cut things. They want you to shoot it and then have the freedom to cut things in the edit. I understand that, but then it really jeopardises your day because you're shooting a third more pages than you're going to end up on the screen and it could cause problems. So the day before I got him to cut some pages and I said I think it would be better if, if my idea for Matron is that she's like Darth Vader, that you never see her feet, she's almost like a Dalek Darth Vader, she just appears and she, I always used to have her just appearance, people go Ooh, that's her. Um, so I brought her in much later and just she was just there. <coughs> And so some pages were cut. It was a nine-page scene, which is long. Nine pages. Uh, so, oh, no, it wasn't, no, it wasn't that long. But it, was just, it just, just went on forever. And, uh, so, and it's still really long, actually. That isn't the end of the scene. So that was cut. So obviously there were late, there were late, late changes to the actors. Eva Pope, who plays Matron, we'd cut some lines she was really fond of. And actually in her desire to cut the lines and we'd cut too many and she said you can't cut that line and we thought no you're right we can't so we put it back in so everyone's learning slightly new lines and then on the day dame jacqueline wilson's written hetty feather was there that actually wasn't that stressful but she was being filmed uh i was being filmed everyone was being filmed as behind the scenes as well um and my dop the main dop had gone off with the first director because they had to do pickup. It was the last day, and they had to do pickup, or the last week, and they had to do pickup shots. So, I, so the focus puller was operating a camera. I mean, it was great, but it, he wasn't the focus puller. Um, and that staircase, although beautiful, is very quite difficult to light, and it has quite expensive antiques around it. And... Um, the other thing, the major thing, is children's hours, which I didn't realise what a total nightmare that is. Um, Licensing. So you'd be... Uh, children... What a shame. It's not Victorian the, times. They the can Victorian only be... Yeah, yeah. You can only... They can only work for a certain number of hours. 16 hours. Whip them. Exactly. Yeah. Put them in the chimney. So um, the AD on the first thing I did with children used to come up to me at sort of 10 o'clock and go, you're burning kids' hours. And, and think, chaperones. What? what? Just... Anyway, yeah. Sorry. So... They, so I decided, because it was Hetty's big scene, that she, we should do all the children first, but that meant having them all in the shot all the time because they're all stacked up. So I was burning my way through those hours because I figured that Eva is so brilliant a matron. When we come round to her, she'll be two takes, it'll be done. But, you know, she was giving everything to the kids. So by the time it got to her, she felt like she was being rushed. 
So there were loads and loads of things going on at the time. A lot of wrangling. A lot of wrangling. And actually, Eva was really unhappy. Um, it just, well, she just felt like, you know, she didn't have enough time. And she was right. So I just thought, right, there's no point in me. I said, look, I, afterwards, I agree. Have, have a think about it. If, we'll cut it together. If you don't like it, we'll reshoot it, your bit. Because I thought, you know, there'd be a lot of pressures on and... And there was the dull thud of your exec producer falling flat well, on the floor I, behind you. Well, I talked to them, but I knew it was good. Yeah. So we cut it together, and the poor thing, she, like a lot of actors, she really hates looking at herself. She was happy it's enough. Not. And, it's and I knew she would scene. be, because it is a really good yeah, scene, and they're great, and it's a showdown. But I chose it because it looks really static and easy and indoors, and actually there's all these little all things those going on. challenges. So yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Chloe. So... The next scene is uh, Matt's, which is from House of Surrogates. I'd never met that person before. I mean, there's a, there's a scene you see before that where she's just landed, and I've literally just asked her on the spot. I've never spoken to her. I'm here making this documentary about this clinic. Can I just follow you now as you meet your baby for the first time? And it was... And that's how sometimes in documentaries, especially observational documentaries, you've, you've got a role. And you'll see it when you watch it. I'm looking at it compared to these two people, and I'm like, oh, my God, what a terrible shot. What, uh, you know, but that's, I suppose, part of observational documentary is sometimes it's a bit of crap, sometimes it's a bit wobbly. And, um, and so it was kind of just winging it yeah. out there. We had access to the clinic, but no... People. I assumed that you'd organised that yeah. woman from That's, the very beginning. No, and actually, my reaction was completely the opposite. I don't know about totally. that. There was some real sort of, actually, in terms of the beats in it, and you went, went to the, the little clip, the which was a real kind of, of yeah, I mean, a sense yeah. of loss and emptiness. And, and I'm and shooting it as well, and I'm doing the oh. audio. And so I suppose it's like, for me, it's those shots you're thinking of, I'm thinking on yeah. the... And the only thing I got the lady to do, really, was Close the, the thing, because I could yeah. see that's how it had to end. Yes. Um, but that is literally, was making it in the moment. So no DOP, no lighting, no sound. Just you. No, yeah, just me and a, a translator, yeah. assistant producer, who, and I can't understand what they're saying half, half the time. But you almost don't need the words, No, you don't, do you? you can, you yeah. can see, can't you? And I suppose that comes down to personal skills again. You can see, can't you? if you're talking to someone and they're getting upset or they're about mm. to break or... Um, so, yeah, that, sometimes mm. you can't prepare for anything. But it's, again, it's just what I'm it. seeing is similarities, is all different kinds of mm. choreographing, conducting, wrangling. Mm. Let's, let's finally have a look at, at Zara. I didn't oh, even sorry. have... I didn't have permission to film in that hospital. I literally <laughs> went in because it was a different <laughs> hospital. I mean, it was in sort of rural India, so they didn't care, yeah, but... but you just on I just the, capture on the it and ask questions later. And you're looking at, you know, these going, oh, look how they look flashy. And I'm looking at that thinking, wow, if yeah, only more drama could have mm. re that, that motion mm. in that shorter time. Yeah. There'd be so at the end of this, lot. between the four of you, you can make the perfect yeah, yeah. piece of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, I think the decision to be outside of the door when she closes the, the thing is, is brilliant. Because you could so easily be in mm. the... Saying with the because your heart is with the lady who's giving the, the baby lost, away. Yeah. Of, I mean, but you're also so conflicted because you know she's doing it for money as well. So yeah. that, but so you really told her it's just so beautiful oh, and it makes me think. Yeah. Can you imagine Davina there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She'd be brilliant. Anyway, let's let's so let's 
look at Zara's yeah. piece and then we can sort of talk about all, all four of them quickly. So this so. is the end of a film that's about a 15-year-old boy who shot and killed his stepfather with the assistance of his friend and he's doing 35 years in an adult prison. And he's just about to move from the juvenile wing of the prison to the adult wing of the prison, which is a strange thing that happens in America. So I was making this film over like two years um, and it's like an... It's in between an observational documentary, which is kind of, you know, what, what Matt's was, and a sort of almost quite constructed thing because it's like a past tense story. So you're sort of blending together the past tense story of the crime and what happened, this horrific sort of murder that happened that affected all these people, and also um, the present tense of what's happening to these boys in prison. So it's like a blend of styles, and it's... Your sympathies change throughout the film, I think, as to whether or not, you, you know, you feel, on the one hand, very conflicted because he did shoot his stepfather in the face and, and leave him dying on the, you know, on the kitchen floor. Um, but at the same time, he's a boy and he's in prison and um, this kind of quite barbaric system that they have in America of kind of putting children in prison, in adult prisons. And um, it just struck me that the whole film, Channel 4 called it the 12-year-old life, because uh, there was another boy who was very vulnerable, who was 12, and really the sort of campaigning aspect of the story was about him. But for me, as uh, I felt incredibly sorry for this child because I felt like his plight was much more subtle because it's harder to get sympathy for him. So I decided that I wanted to end the film with him. I knew that from the beginning. And I knew that I needed to sort of like change the, the way we engage with him somehow. Anyway, when I met him in person before we were filming, I said, Colt, do you, he writes these diaries and stuff. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. Do you think you could sort of like, for me, just for my background research, write down like how you think being in prison has changed you? And, and he has this thing about wanting to sort of show people that you can reform. And I said, do you think you could just sort of write a few thoughts down for me? And the next time I went, when I went to film with him, he'd written that thing that he's saying at the end, and he just read it out to me, and I was like, I find that really powerful. Really um, would you mind if I audio recorded you saying that? And he's like, hmm, sounds, that sounds interesting, all right. So we just you know, recorded that, and then I, I knew that that was really powerful, but it's kind of a bit unusual. It's not really documentary. It's kind of like performing almost. So then, um, obviously, we're filming in a maximum security prison and coming back to the thing of, like, it looks so simple, but actually, you're in someone's cell. You're not allowed in, to be on your own in a cell with a, a murderer without, like, a prison officer with you, basically. It's a tiny cell, so we're there with a DP, Will, who's <laughs> Sarah knows, um, a sound recordist. Uh, it's really hard to get good sound in prisons because they're so echoey. Um, we've got this person who's watching for our security, and um, I decided, like, we have to film him doing these exercises because it says everything about his psychology. He's basically protecting himself from being beaten up or raped when he goes into adult prison. Mm. So at the end of this crazy filming day where you're up against the clock, you know, you've, in prisons, everything, you can't have a minute longer than you're allowed to have. And I sort of say, can we do this weird slow-motion exercise shot? And everyone's like, what the hell is she doing? <laughs> like really, is this the most important thing we're doing now? We're doing the exercise shot. And I'm like, please, we just need half an hour more to do the exercise shots. And we choose it, and actually it's the end of the film, and I, I think it works. And um, it was that thing of, like, 
it, it, what's coming through to me about all of us is like, you're kind of, I started writing scripts now, and it's so much more similar to editing documentaries than anything else, because you're kind of writing as you're filming. Mm -hmm. You're going, okay, that's my scene where this happens. Like you were, you were writing that thing with the door as you were filming it. You were deciding, yeah. okay, I'm, my perspective is I'm outside of the door, or you know, you're making those decisions all the time. And I just think that is what I kind of see <coughs> as being making documentaries, particularly and telling stories. And telling stories, yeah. yeah. I mean, what's impressive about that is, in someone else's hands, you'd have an interview yeah. with yeah. someone in a prison cell, yeah. which is like almost the worst situation to be in because that's all it's ever going to be. But Zara's made a conscious, mm. uh, conscious decision to get all this thing, these things happening to then edit together. And then, so it's, you forget it's an interview. Yes. It's like it's actuality. And you forget it's a prison cell mm. as well. And I, I mean, I haven't seen it, unfortunately, but I've al already, that guy has a narrative. Yeah. yeah. And a reality. Yeah. Hi, thanks for coming today. It was really, really interesting. Um, this question's for um, Matt. So when you're sort of put in the situation uh, inside the clinic and you've got to sort of think on your feet to build this narrative quite quickly, do you overshoot to get shots which you may not have thought about on the day? Do you, yeah, so with the pickup shots and when you're on a, a short time scale, I mean, I guess this applies to you when you're in the um, cell as well. Do you... Um, do you overshoot to get shots um, I, I mean, I for the edit? I mean, I overshoot anyway. Okay. And that is annoying for an exec because it probably adds a week to the edit. Yeah. But is amazing for the editor because he's got so much more things to cut to. So I don't even know when I shot the, 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 pegs. the pegs. I may have shot it before the, the lady comes to pick up the baby. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not sure. But when I'm there, I am I'm thinking... And it goes back to development, having made and edited taster tapes. I'm thinking for the edit. So yeah. I've probably, yeah, there's loads of shots that have never been used. So POV's out her window to the street below. And yeah. So, yeah. I'd just like to say something about factual, that um, now that directors often don't go into edits, um, there's an ed edit producer, you probably all know about this, and often with a big series, not the kind of things you do, but... The footage comes in from shooting directors and then it's edited by oh. an edit producer. Mm. And if you're in that situation, go into the edit, stick in the edit and see what they do and then get to a point where you say, no, I'm going to edit it myself. It's really important And actually it happens learn. in some soaps as well. Yeah. Yeah. So. I just want to say yeah, something very quickly, and I'm not in any way, everybody has a different perspective. I'm not a fan of overshooting. I know my genre is different, but I did, I did actually make documentaries for children's because I was in children's for seven years, so I did sort of like... I did documentary about children with HIV in the UK. And it's precisely for that reason, because you have got to own your work. And it's... Nowadays, it's so easy for somebody to take your vision and completely ruin it. And back in the day, before you had all these SD cards, you had film, and film was expensive, or VT was expensive. So I'm... a I'm more of a fan of shooting what I want and editing in my head, but that's only my point of view. So because when you hand it over, they've got the pictures and there's sort of a way of it. There's only one way of doing it. I overshoot a little bit, but it's all a very... I just wanted to give the opposite side yeah. to yeah. that as well. I, I would just add to that. I think there's a, you learn 
uh, I think the thing about going into an edit is like absolutely the, the key piece of advice because it always strikes me that people have made a couple of short films and then they make a long film. You can just see that they haven't had the edit experience, yeah, actually. Yeah, um, But I am sort of probably in between the two of you in the sense that I don't do observational films where I film for long periods of time. And, uh, and I, I, I kind of basically am quite like a sniper. Like, mm. you know, I go in and it's like... Uh, this is what I need. But I think there is something about coverage that people talk about, which is really important. And um, I was on a shoot last week, and I was talking to the DP about it, and he was saying he shoots a lot of drama, and he just treats documentary scenes like drama. It's like, start with the wide, yeah. get that, make sure you've got oh, the, the master shot, story, go yeah. in, get your tight pick up, oh. pick off the details, and then get a couple of cutaways to get you out of prison, <laughs> basically. And that's it's very simple, but actually like thinking about it in terms of coverage like in the worst case scenario do I have something to cut to <laughs> it's really important when you talk to some edit producers who are some of my friends are they say they get hours of footage <coughs> but there's no sense of story yeah. they don't know yeah. what this director is trying coverage. to yeah. say I so mean, when you when say, say overshooting it's not it's but I am I shoot more than I imagine some people might but what I'm doing is I'm getting, I'm not just getting it's anything. It's motivated. I'm looking at those yeah. pegs mm. thinking, that says something. Mm. Some and people literally shoot everything. everything. Yeah. And, and that's and basically it's... the tantamount to shooting nothing. Yeah, mm. precisely, because you have no vision. I think but we all like agree Zara, that is I am, I haven't followed her for weeks and months on end. I meet her twice. I am like a you yeah. know, sniper. <laughs> yeah. I've gone, I want you then, and I want you then. What was your greatest challenge and how did you overcome it? <laughs> When I was Deep. four. Yeah. <laughs> when I picked my child up. Uh, um, there's so many. Got you thinking yeah. now. Yeah, no, there's so many. I don't... They'll blend it's in. the continuous knockbacks, I think. Yeah. Do you think it's actually, I think in keeping some ways, going. the, the <laughs> keeping on going it is for keep everybody. Going and it does yeah. still, is quite difficult for yeah. me, actually. I don't think it gets yeah. any it's, easier. It's very it? lonely, I would say, <laughs> being a director. It's actually it very lonely. That's I, why they're so happy to come out on a Sunday it's morning. It's so yeah. nice to be around people. We're uh, here for you. I've been in tears three times. This morning. And I'm <laughs> The first one, I was 32. The last one was a year ago, and I was 43. So you can just give... I'm, I'm quite a well-rounded person. I don't tend to cry generally, but that's how frustrating it can be sometimes. And sometimes you know you're right and everybody else is wrong, and that's really frustrating. Um, but I would say the greatest challenging is keeping going and just in, in adversity of people that should know better. I'm sounding like a real sort of like egotist, aren't I? I'm not, but would you agree that with regards I, to execs and sometimes see, it's think, sometimes... Um, it's a, yeah, I had, this, <laughs> I, I, I had this conversation on Friday with, with an exec producer. Who, they're kind of your boss, right? You yeah. know, like you have to ultimately kind of answer to them. And it was a ridiculous conversation that went on for an hour and a half that like, I was meant to be editing, so I knew that I'd then have to work an hour and a half later to make that time up. And I knew that, like, I knew that we had to get to a certain conclusion because the film couldn't work without this thing. Anyway, I came off the phone and I said to the editor, it's, it's like you're in fight mode quite a lot mm. of the time. And, yeah. and, you know, you have to kind of enjoy that in some way without being... It's really positive. We all clearly love what we do. You wouldn't do it otherwise, right? But there is... It's like a fight, like a it's slog. Like, like, the smallest things you have to really fight there's for. There's a real bunker mentality, yes. isn't it? And I, I've been on the other side. I, I exact something once. 
And I remember going into the edit and feeling that these, the editor and the director <laughs> kind of like, yeah. you're here to ruin it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was. Uh, <laughs> I was. So, so it's just persistent and never giving in, basically? Yeah. I think so. No, yeah. I think, I mean, okay. you do have to give in sometimes. Sometimes you are wrong. So oh, you've got yeah. to admit no, that yeah, sometimes you are. And sometimes I think an exec can come totally. in from the outside yes, and totally. see the wood for the trees. Totally. And, yeah. and, and actually, you know, the, heart, one, the thing that I've learned, actually, from film to film, and I think we'll continue to learn and we'll never get right, but we'll always get better at, is um, no one's giving you a note, like, maliciously, right? They're, they're doing it because they want to get to the same place that oh. you want to get to, which is to make the best film. And... Often, I think generally, often they are. Come on, like people Some don't say. This is not an exec producer bashing yeah. session. But what I would say is that they're not often. They're not. There's a reason they're not the director. Yeah. And and but the problem is how you communicate that back to them. Yeah. What I've learned is some, someone said to me who was a director who became an exec. They gave me this amazing piece of advice that I always remember. Which is like don't dismiss what they're saying. Try and understand what's underneath what they're saying and then try and find a solution to it. It's your job to come up with a solution. It's their job. They're as valid as any viewer to point out like if something doesn't make sense or if you, they're not feeling something when they should be feeling something, that is your problem as the director. So and find I, a way I, to communicate yeah. with them. Yeah. I used to get notes the other way around. So I'd get a list of change all these things, like literally two frames off here, two frames off there. And the editor was like, what? And I said, no, no. These, what he said, that these are the problems, this is his fix. He doesn't know that's not the fix. The fix, exactly. But he does know there's a problem, and I think we should look at everyone. If we think there's no problem, we don't do it. But if we think there is, we need to fix it. Hello, I'm Jess. I work in development. When you're in between contracts, if you think you've got a really good idea that hasn't been seen by, like, a TV production company, do you think it's best to try and make that idea happen yourself, or do you think it's better to go with a company? I'm in a situation at the moment where I've taken one direct idea direct to a channel and one direct to a company because it's a, it's a, a world I don't really know that well. So I think the company I've gone to will open more doors. But I think it probably depends on the project. I would say starting out, particularly, um, align yourself with companies who the broadcasters trust. Like, you, things don't just get commissioned out of thin air. They, it's all about trust. It's all about who they know. They know they can pull off that kind of project in that kind of world. I think once you get more established, you can then... So with 12 Year Life, I actually pitched it straight to Channel 4, and then we aligned with the company who'd helped me get the access, but it... I just went straight there because I already had a relationship, but I didn't think they were going to give me the budget to go make the film because I, I, you know, they're not going to sort of hand you a check for two hundred and fifty grand or whatever. So you know, it's kind of. Um, I it's think been warehoused, isn't it? Almost. Yes. Yeah. So if it's a great idea, somebody will go with it, but they'll probably they won't. Like they, they won't, won't give you the. They budget. won't give you the budget because, because they, they want to won't make trust sure it you. can be delivered yeah. as it's supposed to be delivered. So if you could do it yourself, do you think it's still beneficial to do it and just like put it on YouTube or do you, like a do you need to make, to make it yourself the whole yeah. thing? Yeah, just a taster. If it's just a short thing, could you? Is it still beneficial to make it? Is it a documentary or what? Anything? I'll just ask in general to be honest. I, it's I, quite specific, I, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's really difficult because I have people saying to me all the time, like, oh, "I've made this great thing. Like, can we find a place for it?" And the problem is that it doesn't work because like, people need to be invested in mm. something. And so you can make a great half an hour film, but 
acquisitions like that rarely happen in TV. Like it's nearly always there needs to be a, a working relationship yeah, I mean, and an investment. Certainly, as an agent, I would say I would always advise my clients to try and get somebody else involved in it because, as, you, as Zara's just said, then they're vested in it. Then it is in their interest for that project to have some success. The only, the only thing I'd add is if you are making stuff for yourself, that is a great learning curve. Yeah. But don't expect that to be necessarily the thing that takes off for you. It might just be something for your showreel, something that you can say, I made this. It may be something that you actually learn from your mistakes and then go on to make something bigger. Hi, uh, really interesting to hear about all your experiences. Um, There's a question for Chloe specifically. Um, I'm interested in the, the sort of transition from documentary to drama and how the, I guess, the storytelling and the edit that happens in documentary, how that translates into drama. Um, well, my transition was a bit odd. I thought it was kind of the end of my career in a way because uh, I, was, I needed a job. I was offered... A, a serious producer, which I wasn't, on a factual entertainment show for E4. I needed a job, ummed and ahed about it. And it was about <laughs> four guys who were... Who, it was like a game show. They were going to dupe four girls into telling them they loved them within two weeks for a cash prize. Uh, and I thought... And the person on the phone went, hello? And I went, uh, yes. Um, anyway, it was at Ealing Studios. Ealing Studios was at that time full of comedians who were doing a weekly show. So the point of this was I went there thinking, oh, has my career come to this? Not that it's bad in itself, it's just not what I wanted to do. So when I was there, I just said, look, I'll do anything. I'll do any comedy pilot. I'll work for free. I'll do weekends. Just anything, I'll make something. And that's what brought the break because Sharon Horgan, her first solo sitcom after pulling she had this idea which was like a mockumentary which I filmed and I was completely cool with it because I was used to filming people without scripts improvising in Trouger Square it didn't bother me with a documentary camera person and from that it took a while in fact almost two years but it became a sitcom and it became much more of a script it was totally scripted and it was three quarters in a studio and a quarter on location Trouger Square, Piccadilly Circus, it was really mental. Um, and at that point, they could have said, well, you know, you haven't got any broadcast drama experience. I've done shorts. Um, but they didn't. They said, would you like to direct it? Which was great. And that was Damon Beasley, who then went on to, was, is the in-betweeners. So that, that was the break. In terms of storytelling... I think the editing, your point about editing is really true. You kind of, it is editing, you can hear. A script is almost like an edited, should be like an edited documentary in a way. It should be really dramatic characters, funny characters. Um, but there's loads and loads of differences. Probably haven't got time to go into it now, but I could talk about it later. There are, it is, it does feel very different. Hi. Um, Kate Baxter, I just finished directing my first film about two days ago and going well through the editing process right now, so I'm so excited to hear your perspective. Thanks. Um, and it's, it's amazing to talk about the editing as I'm going through the editing process now and knowing the mistakes I've made as a first-time director and, and these kinds of things for film. I've done a lot of stage. Um, and the, the interesting thing that I keep reflecting on is how much preparation is in, post, in pre-production and I'm just curious to know your styles 
How much do you prepare beforehand, your mood boards, your storyboards, your shot lists? How in-depth do you get beforehand? Obviously, in some cases, you don't even know you're going to be filming um, in the hospital, and so you run in on, at the end. But, but when you do prepare or when you know what you want to be filming, what do you do yourself? Hey, I can ask you to be really quick, guys. I don't think it's really, I, I prep everything. I, I was once told, you know, if you don't prepare, prepare to fail. So I literally prep absolutely everything and have an eye over everything. Um, but I do make, I do reserve the right to change my mind. But I, I prep everything. Uh, I do general stuff, so mood boards, and I listen to music while I'm thinking about. And I, tr- I always do camera plans for every scene. I try and do shot lists for every scene. I mean, do do them. It and makes I things quicker, doesn't it, as story, well? Yeah. On the day, if, if people know camera plans, then we're going to stand and you should have, you should have to waste yeah. five minutes explaining. And you've got a backup as well. If, yeah. you, if it is completely different and something has to change, you know you had a plan and you can chuck it away. And also storyboard key scenes. I often don't have time to storyboard it all. Um, in a perfect world, a lot. Um, in the real world, um, sometimes not that much. So... For example, I'm shooting an interview on Wednesday that I only signed the person up on Friday and I've never been to where it's going to be shot and it's in a house and I don't know what I can get her to do to make it not feel like an interview. So winging it in a way, um, but in a perfect world, a lot of interview, uh, a lot of preparation and sometimes I do storyboard things, but I'm rarely in a position where I can do that with with much uh, advance. Sarah? Um, it really, really depends on the project. I, I'm quite a planner for um, within the documentary space. I, I do quite like to plan quite, quite closely. Um, but also, I think like learning the art of knowing when to throw the plan away is so important wow. because you can miss things then. And then that's, that's the biggest shame. So if you Have if, the plan, but be prepared yeah. to throw the plan away. Hi. Um, Thank you for your time. It's really good to listen to, to your experiences. And my name is Abigail Dagwa, and I'm um, a new multi camera director. And this is a question for Julian. And I wanted to find yes, out. <laughs> um, I wanted to find out what you, would you do now if you were starting out um, to get to direct your first hour of television? It's the why do you give me the impossible question? <laughs> I would meet, I would get in touch with people like me. I have two people that I'm mentoring currently. One of them has just got their first director's job, so I can help. There are other directors that are horrible and they are very drawbridge up. I'm very, can I just say as well, I am so, we are, we've got, there are five white people on this, yeah. on this. I'm so encouraged by the diversity in this room. It is disgusting. Disgusting that there are le- there are so few diverse people doing our jobs. Hideous word. I'm so sorry, but you please take the the, the, the reason behind it. Um, get in touch with me. Let's chat. Come and trail me. That's what we do. That's how we, that's how we make it work. Although I must say, in children's, I thought it was a really better mix. A way better mix. Really yeah, way better mix. And it's a good place to get into. Really. But my, there are no, there are no. I can't think of any mainstream diverse from a diverse background in my. There, there is a couple of people coming up, um, but. Um, you know, Michaela Cole can't be the only genius out there. Just me. It's like, you know, Good. please just get... just. And it's up to you guys to, to change it for that next generation. Yeah. So... Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
to Sarah, Matt, Chloe, Zara and Julian. If you're interested in the craft of directing, which by now we should hope you are, watch our web series on directing or catch the archive of our David Lean lectures. That's all at bafta.org forward slash guru.